I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. It's on page 1139. Acts chapter 1. Uh, this spring, uh, Pastor Sam and I have been uh, spending our time with you looking at what is, is probably the most eventful and, and almost certainly the most important two-month period of time in Christian history. So it starts with Jesus' death on the cross. It's Good Friday. A few days later, it's Easter. Jesus rises from the dead. Uh, and then the book of Acts, we read, uh, I think last week or the week before, that uh, Jesus, after he rose from the dead, he showed himself in his resurrected body to many people over 40 days. Uh, and then last week, we talked about how he then ascended into heaven. Uh, next week, we are going to talk about uh, Pentecost, when his spirit comes upon the church. All these things happen uh, in less than two months of time in the Bible. And these events are pretty much as big as it gets for Christians. They, they are each of them basically uh, the entire foundation of the Christian faith. Everything that happens at the end of the Gospels and then the beginning of the book of Acts, uh, these, these events are all of them world-changing. <laughs> uh, they're all incredibly important. But one of the problems that we have as uh, readers of Scripture uh, is actually just how fast these events come at us. So especially the things after Jesus rose from the dead. So if you look at verse 3 of Acts chapter 1, it says that Jesus showed himself and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive, which is great. It's important, right? It's not every day somebody comes back to life, has this resurrected body. So I'm glad that there are many convincing proofs. But the fact is, the Bible actually only contains in detail just a few of the stories of those proofs. The fact is, all of these momentous events are crammed into really just a few short chapters at the end of each of the Gospels and then at the beginning of the book of Acts. Which means that every story that does get included becomes like this incredibly important morsel of information. And we turn it over and over and we examine it for meaning. So if you guys were here a few weeks ago, you might remember uh, how much fuss we made over the fish. Remember this? Luke 24, Jesus eats a fish. Uh, and I was like, notice the fish! The fish is so important! Like, the fish changes everything, right? That's what I'm talking about. There's not, there's not a lot of stories here. And so each one needs our very careful attention. Except, I wonder, our passage today. Um, this is a warning, so I'm going to get about halfway through reading the passage. Um, and you're going to be thinking, uh, seriously, Pastor? Um, this is your idea of a Mother's Day sermon? Um, it, it would have killed you to do like a Proverbs 31 thing or something. Um, some of you know that I'm, I'm not crazy about doing Mother's Day sermons. Um, I'm crazy about mothers, uh, but I'm not crazy about sermons just for mothers. Um, but even I will admit, this one probably could have waited till next week, um, as we'll see. Uh, but it was kind of too late, uh, so here we go. 
Uh, in, in my experience, though, I think, at the very least, I, I know that mothers tend to be uh, pretty used to gross stuff. So, um, with that exciting preview, let's jump in. This is chapter 1, verse 12. Then they, that is like the disciples, returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. Notice, that's different than Judas Iscariot, who was another disciple. We're going to find out about him in a minute. Um, They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Uh, So basically who this is, uh, in the Bible, there were like 12 kind of main disciples, but there was a, a bigger group that kind of accompanied Jesus through most of his ministry. In, in one place, it's described as a group of 70. Uh, here, it's a group of 120. These are people including his family, but just other people, men and women, who were close disciples, but not part of the 12. Uh, so verse 15, in those days, Peter stood up among this uh, group of believers. Uh, he says a group numbering about 120 And he said, Brothers and sisters, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit long ago, through the mouth of David, concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. Judas was one of our number and shared in this ministry. And then we get this delightful parenthetical note. With the reward Judas got for his wickedness, they're talking about he got those 30 pieces of silver. Judas bought a field, and there he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language, Akaldama, that is, field of blood. So, happy Mother's Day. Um, verse 20, For said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, May his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And so they proposed two men, Joseph called Barsabas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. And then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. And then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the eleven apostles. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I guess the truth is, uh, this is not just a a weird Mother's Day passage. It's just kind of a weird passage altogether. It starts out pretty promising. Uh, So you'll remember from verse 4 of Acts 1 that Jesus told these guys not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Holy Spirit. And what do you know? That's what they're doing. So that's good. Uh, I'm glad that 
Luke, the author of this book, wanted to tell us that they were obeying Jesus. That's important. But then all of a sudden, there's this weird turn in the story. All of a sudden, the disciples are really worried about their leadership structure. It's like somebody got out the bylaws and they were like, wait, there's only 11. We're supposed to have 12. And so in this section is this like lengthy tangent where they figure out who the new 12th is going to be. Now remember, everything around here, right? The end of Luke, beginning of Acts, everything we're talking about, it's really important stuff, right? No detail is to be overlooked, which means that the important essential question that could not wait to be answered is, who will be the 12th member of the board? Not who's the first, not who's the leader, not who's the president, not who's the secretary, just who is the 12th? They talk about it. They pray. They draw lots. It's Matthias. Now, maybe you say, well, you know, Pastor, I, you know, the leadership stuff doesn't seem that important. You know, I, to have a 12th, you know, who cares? But, uh, you know, Matthias, they needed a way to introduce Matthias because he goes on to do such important things. Do you, do you know what important things Matthias did as the 12th apostle? Do you know what great deeds he accomplished? No, nobody knows, because this is the last time that he gets mentioned in the Bible. What's going on here? What, what is something as trivial as like this end-of-the-line leadership planning doing in like this otherwise like densely packed, like everything is important section of the Bible? In some ways, I think this kind of goes against some of our images of what the early church was like. So sometimes I think we think that, you know, wasn't the early church like, weren't they just like organic? You know, like, weren't they just led by the Spirit, man? Um, like we picture the early church as like kind of this like dreamy, hippie like group. Like they were just sharing and they were just loving But then here, at like this critically important time in the Bible, where every verse counts, Luke slows things way down. And he tells us in excruciating detail how they filled the vacancy for the twelfth. Why does Luke do this? Well, this is my theory. I, I think this is Luke's way of saying, even with all the excitement going on, okay, so Jesus is rising from the dead, Jesus is ascending into heaven, we're waiting for Pentecost, right? Even with all this excitement going on, human leadership still matters. I think that's what he's saying. Sometimes I think there's this idea that if we were really spiritual, we wouldn't need leaders. But I think this is saying that leadership is not a glitch in the system. It's not an accident. It has been part of the plan 
since the beginning. And honestly, I, I think that makes people a little uncomfortable. It makes me a little uncomfortable. I was thinking again this week, you know, um, has there been anything in the last 20 years that has done more damage to the church's reputation than the hypocrisy of its leaders? I, I couldn't think of anything. You got the, the clergy abuse scandal in the Catholic Church, which is just horrifying, right? And you've got just as awful things happening in Protestant churches. And, and sometimes I think, you know, maybe that hippie vision isn't so bad, actually. And yet Luke wants us to know the church needs leaders. Now, does Luke know that leaders are flawed? I think that he does. Does he know that leaders will disappoint us? I think he also knows that. But here, in this like, critical moment in the Bible, uh, the, the most important two months, Luke wants to make sure that we know that the Christians took time to do leadership well. So I will admit it's weird that it gets included here. But maybe not that weird. As for the rest of the section... Uh, that's, that's something else. Um, we go from resurrection. Very exciting. Ascension. We are looking forward to Pentecost, and then we get verse 18. He fell headlong. His body burst open. And all his guts spilled out. Bonus points. Uh, what's the Greek word for guts? Yeah, right. Drew, right away in the back. Splagnon. What's this doing here? I mean, all this great stuff. End of Luke, beginning of Acts. Super exciting. Whose idea was it to bring up Judas? I mean, a lot of commentators I read wondered this week, like, why not just skip everything from verse 12 to the end of chapter 1? Just go straight from Ascension to Pentecost. Who is going to miss this section? Right? We've already said Matthias. It's not like he's going to come up again. Nobody's going to be wondering, hey, where'd this guy come from? Right? And surely there could have been another time to update us on Judas. And while we're at it, maybe Luke could consider the virtue of euphemism when describing someone's death. Um, like, why does Luke go there? Why just dive into all this unpleasantness? I think to understand why this is in here, uh, you need to go past the grisly detail. And you need to look at how Peter, in the story, explains the situation, how he sets it up. Because Peter, in the story, he doesn't just say, uh, oh man, we're, we're down a guy. We need a replacement. Look at verse 16. Brothers and sisters, the Scriptures had to be fulfilled concerning Judas. In other words, Peter is saying, Judas was part of the Scripture plan from the beginning. 
And so Peter quotes these two verses. The uh, first is Psalm 69. The next one is Psalm 109. They're both Psalms of David. They're written in similar circumstances. Uh, so both of them are written in bad times in David's life. Uh, basically, they talk a lot about enemies. Um, David's talking about all these enemies he has. And, and the theme of both of these psalms is basically this. Bad guys keep winning. <laughs> the bad guys keep winning. And David says, basically, God, when is this going to stop? Uh, psalm 109 especially talks about how the bad guys used to be David's friends. They've turned on him. They've betrayed him. And, and it seems to David, in both of these psalms, like God's just not really taking this seriously. Um, like God is not interested in the fact that bad guys are doing bad things, that God's not interested in setting things right. Uh, and so both of these quotes from verse 20 in Acts 1, these are both things that David hopes for these enemies, for these people who've betrayed him. That his enemies' uh, home would be deserted, right? So basically, he'd be wiped off the face of the earth. Or that, that somebody would take his place of leadership, presumably somebody better than the last guy, right? Now, to be clear, I, I, don't think, I don't think King David was exactly looking into the future uh, when he wrote these psalms and like anticipating this specific Judas guy betraying the Messiah in just this specific way. What I think is happening here is I think the Holy Spirit led David to talk about something that is universally true. Something that all of us, I think, if we've lived long enough, know all too much about. Which is that the bad guys win. And it seems like they win a lot. Um, I was thinking about these, uh, this Boko Haram, you know, kidnapping all these girls, you know, what, like three years ago. And a couple weeks ago, like, they, they returned a few of them in, like, this exchange. And now all these people are, like, trying to figure out, like, what horrific things these girls have gone through. Like, that's, that's what they're trying to figure out right now. And meanwhile, these, these warlords, they just got a few of their own prisoners released in exchange. You know, or I think about, uh, you know, we hear about this sometimes in our own neighborhood, in our own city, right? These, these pimps who are like trafficking kids into the sex industry, like right, right here in Grand Rapids. Um, and then there's other things, which I guess are, maybe are more mundane, but still I think illustrate the same thing. Like, your brother gets cancer right? Or like prayer cards today, right? Like somebody's mom dies or somebody's son dies. And it seems like, it seems like the bad guys win. And it seems like they win kind of a lot. And so you go back to these early Christians, right? And, and, and it occurred to me this week, like as exciting as these two months would have been for them, right? All these amazing things happening, right? Jesus rising from the dead and then like ascending into heaven and they're waiting for Pentecost, like, as exciting as that would have been, it had still only been like a few weeks earlier that one of their own, Judas, right? One of their own, someone that they loved and trusted, had sold out their rabbi, their teacher, their brother, their friend 
for 30 pieces of silver. And, and now they're kind of like living their lives. And yes, it's very exciting, but every time they notice that Judas is missing, every time they see only 11, they're reminded that like that bad guy came from their ranks. And they're reminded that Jesus chose him <laughs> to be among their ranks. And this must have been really confusing, right? Why did God... Let this happen. Like, why did God let Judas get in there? I mean, what Judas did was basically like the low point of human history. (laughs) Everything wrong with humanity. Uh, Our jealousies, our pride, our greed, they all like show up in this one awful moment. But then in the face of this awful moment, Peter makes a stunning claim. Peter claims that even that awful stuff, even the most unspeakable human treason, even Judas, even that, was not out of God's control. God used even that He worked even that into his plan. So Peter points out basically two things. First, he points out that God took the lowest point of human history and he turned it into the best thing that ever happened to us. Uh, Jesus' death, by that death, he took the the punishment for our sins. He made it possible to, to wipe the slate clean with God. To have a new and living hope. I mean, it's pretty good. And then there's something else that he points out. And this is is the thing that we're not comfortable with. This is the blood and the guts. Um, Peter points out that Judas got what he deserved. He points out that sometimes the bad guys do get punished. Sometimes the bad guys do get what's coming to them. And that is not outside God's control either. Now, I should be clear that in our church, um, when something bad happens to one of us, or when something bad happens in the world, we are very, 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 very slow to assume that that bad thing was some kind of punishment from God. Um, Even Peter here, he more hints at that conclusion than like announces it. And I think the biggest reason that we are very, 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 very slow to say something like that is, is God's punishment is because of the deeper issue that Peter is pointing out here. Which is this. It is not out of the ordinary for God to use very bad situations to do very good things. To take our very worst moments and bring something beautiful. So in this church, I have heard people say that losing their job turned out to be the best thing that ever happened to them. 
And I have heard you say that getting that disease taught you to trust God in ways that you never thought you could. God can take our very worst and He can bring something beautiful. But of course, there are other situations in this church and in this world where things do not seem to ever turn out well. Where a situation is bad at its beginning and it's bad in the middle and it's bad at the end and it's bad 10 years later and it's still bad 20 years later. It's just bad all the way through. Sometimes we see nothing like a silver lining. But from the very earliest days of the church, Christians have believed that even when things are going badly, even when the bad guys seem to be winning again, even when happy blessings are not falling from heaven, that does not mean God has stopped working. That does not mean that God is not there. That does not mean that God's plan has somehow failed. You know, these are some of the deepest, hardest questions Christians ever ask. Where is God in this? How could this ever be made anything resembling good? And to be honest, and I've told a lot of you this, I, I do not always have a satisfying answer. But you know, in a letter, this same guy, Peter, wrote a number of years later. He's writing it to a group of Christians, and he says this. He says that, though now for a little while you have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, which sounds like a pretty good way to describe what some of you are going through, suffering grief in all kinds of trials. He says, these have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold may be proved genuine. He compares it to the the refining fire's work on a piece of gold. He says that it may be proved genuine and result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. How does somebody write that? (laughs) That that sounds so confident to me. But you know, I bet that Peter wrote that because he had seen firsthand God take the very worst of human history and turn that into the best thing that ever happened to us. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that